Good morning, church. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you all. Hey, before we uh, start, I just want to issue a welcome to anyone who's new this morning. I saw a few new faces coming in. Uh, so glad that you're joining us for worship. It's always nice, especially on a beautiful day like this, to meet new friends. Uh, if you would do me a favor, if you are new, uh, we don't want to trouble you too much, but we do have a gift for you at our welcome desk, and I would love for you to pick that up, uh, and I would love to meet you as well. Uh, I would love to kind of hear what brought you here. One of our values here at Chapel Street is that we be a place where people can experience grace. Uh, and basically what that means is we don't just want to be a place where you kind of check in, check out. We want to be a place that cares for those who come through our doors, that see each other, that care for one another. Uh, and so uh, again, if you're new with us, we are so glad you're joining us. You can stop by our welcome desk to learn more, or you can scan the QR code in front of you on the seats. That's always really helpful as well. A couple of other things that we value here at this church is growing in our faith as well. We always want to be, as a, as a people of God, a people who are following Jesus, learning what that really means in our day-to-day lives. Church is not just something that we come to every Sunday morning. It is an opportunity for us to continue growing in our walk with God. And so I wanted to highlight two things for you. The first is some baptisms that we'll be having next month. Uh, I'm really excited. This is always my favorite services that we get to do together. Just getting to celebrate what God's done in individual lives. If you've never seen a baptism before, it's just a chance for us to celebrate kind of symbolically, what Jesus does in the lives of those who trust in him and follow him. We get to hear stories of how Jesus impacted lives. And if you are looking to take that step in your walk, I want to invite you to come and learn a little bit more. We'll be having a baptism class in just a few weeks. Uh, And this is not at all a commitment if you go to this class. It's not like your name's going to appear on a screen suddenly on a Sunday morning. It's just a chance for you to learn a little bit more about what baptism is and why we do it. Uh, So please make sure that you've got that ready. If you're praying about that, if you're thinking about that. The other thing I want to invite you to join in on is in a few weeks, we're going to be starting kind of a Sunday morning uh, class for those who want to learn a little bit more about Christianity, about the faith, and why it's reasonable. I'm really excited about this. We're going to be going through a book together called Reason to Believe by a guy called R.C. Sproul. And we're just going to take 30 minutes on a Sunday morning before church, 9 to 9.30. For anyone, anyone is welcome to this. You don't have to sign up ahead of time. We'd love for you to join us. And we're just going to talk together about what makes Christianity reasonable. Why is it something that we can trust in? Why is it something we can look to? So if you want to look to grow in your faith and learn a little bit more, please do join us for that. I'll make sure to get that in our bulletins and highlight that here for the next couple of weeks so you remember that. One last thing is uh, we always say we want to be a place where you experience grace, grow in faith, but also make an impact. We're going to be learning that a lot as we start this new series in James. James is a letter all about a faith that moves us into action. Uh, And some of you took that step last week. I want to thank those of you that signed up to help with our kids' ministry. Uh, If you remember last week we talked, we, we have a pretty critical need here in our kids' ministry. We believe that God is doing some really great things. We're seeing it grow. And so we ask for 12 people that say yes just once a month to help serve in our kids. Uh, Four of you chose to do that, so we just have eight more spots. We'd love for you to keep praying and considering that. We can fill that up today. If you want to stop by our welcome desk, Miss Becky's back there, and she can tell you a little bit more. But just to kind of highlight this, it's not being a teacher. You don't have to stand in front of a class of a whole bunch of people and get real nervous. I promise. My kids are back there, and they're only kind of naughty half the time, okay? So... No, it's great to be back there with them, and I really do believe this is the future of our church. We want to invest in it. We want to pour into it. So please, if you're thinking about that, we'd invite you to stop by and learn a little bit more about that. As we step into Washington, I want to invite you to stand, and as we do, uh, please join with me. I want to remind you of something really important. When we come into this place and we worship, we are not coming here to kind of get our religious test passed. 
We're not coming here to check in with God so he doesn't get grumpy with us. We're coming in here to be welcomed by the living Christ, the one who has risen. And I just want to remind you in this place, if you are weary this morning, if you are tired, know that it's not I who welcomes you here. It's not even Chapel Street Church who welcomes you here. It's Christ who welcomes you into his house, who loves you and has given himself for you. So let's celebrate him. What better reason is there to sing this morning than the fact that we have been loved by the creator of the universe? Let's sing together. Well, I, uh, I don't know whether the, you guys could hear it this morning, but y'all sing beautiful. Y'all sing good. <laughs> yeah, that's worthy of an applause. I um, just, just stood there this morning. Uh, you know, every time I come to church, it's really easy to get into routine. I don't know if you're like me. You kind of come in, you get in the seats, you sit with the people of God, you sing the songs, you listen to the sermon, and then you're off. And this morning, it was just so good, and I want to thank you, church, for making me stop and realize that the living God is in this place, that the risen Christ is with us, and he wants to speak to us. So in that vein, I want to pray for us as we come to his word. I want him to speak to us. I need it as much as you do, so let's go to his word today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chance to come to your word. God, we know that you desire good things for us. We're going to hear this morning that you are the Father that gives every good gift and every perfect gift. So Father, as we come and as we read these words, Lord, let them not roll over the top of us, but Lord, let them penetrate to our hearts. Let us be changed by them. Let us see you clearly. Would you speak through your word this morning, we pray, by your Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am, uh, I'm a fan of unlikely hero stories. I don't know whether, I think like that's like a, an American vibe, right? Americans just love the underdog. Uh, and I love reading stories about these. And I, whenever I think about unlikely heroes, I've now thankfully got this kind of list that I go back to, I always think about. And these stories, no matter how many times I hear them, they always kind of capture me and inspire me. For example, did you know that Albert Einstein, who we've got here, picture, this marvelously handsome man, he was uh, a failure at the beginning of his career. Now all of us, we know Einstein as being the smartest man who ever lived, right? His name is synonymous with genius. And yet, if I was to tell you that at the beginning of his schooling, he could not speak fluently until the age of nine. And I'm not just talking English, I'm talking his own language here. Couldn't speak fluently until he was nine. He had a rebellious nature that led him to being expelled from school and he was refused admittance to the Zurich Polytechnic School. That was the man who went on to change physics for the entire world. Even today, we are still figuring out the details of some of the theories that he put forward. Unlikely hero. Second one that I always like to think about is Walt Disney. Now, this is one's a little bit more of a common story. Walt Disney, I don't know whether you know this, he dropped out of school at a very young age uh, in an attempt to join the army. It didn't work out. It uh, didn't work out at all. And so he started Laughogram Studios to try and kind of get his business going. Uh, and it went bankrupt due to his lack of ability to run a successful business. Uh, he was even fired from a Missouri newspaper. And I love the reason why he was not creative enough. Walt Disney was not creative enough. Dismissed from a newspaper. Now, maybe my favorite one of all time, though, is the most American, is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is a very unlikely hero. Now, we, to this day, right, we recognize and venerate Abraham Lincoln as one of the greatest presidents who have lived. 
I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time a few years ago and got to see the, the memorial, the kind of statue that they have there. And I always grew up, even in England, I heard the stories of Abraham Lincoln and what a great leader he was. But did you know that he failed in business in 1831? He suffered a nervous breakdown in 1836. He was defeated in several political runs, the last of which was a run for the presidency itself. And yet he became the man that we now know. An unlikely hero. All of these people, unlikely heroes. And what I really enjoy about this new letter that we're starting is it is the letter of a very unlikely hero. This is written by a very unlikely hero, a man named James. A man named James. This is how he begins his letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause there. Because that might not strike us as unique at all. We might read that and go, okay, yeah, I've read lots of letters in the Bible, lots of books of the Bible that start in a very similar way. But this man is different. And let me tell you why. James was one of the biological brothers of Jesus. James, you may not know it, but Jesus had uh, brothers and sisters. It's, uh, it's right there in the Gospels. We'll look at them in a second. But uh, of course, Mary and Joseph, uh, Mary conceived Jesus miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit, was a virgin birth. But then Mary and Joseph went on to do what many other married couples do, of course, and they had children. And this is what we're told about Jesus' family in the Gospels. Mark 3, 6, and John 7. Listen to all these. They're all of them really interesting. Mark 3 tells us when his family heard of it, and they're talking about his preaching and his ministry, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. That's what Jesus' own brothers and sisters thought of him. He's out of his mind. Tried to stop him doing what he was doing. This guy's lost his mind. He's telling people he's God. He's saying that he can do miracles. He's saying that he's come to forgive the sins of the world. This guy has lost it. We go on in Mark 6, we're told that when other people gathered around Jesus and they heard his teaching and they watched him, we're told that they said, is this not the cabin of the son of Mary and the brother of James and of Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? So it's, there's kind of a whole family there gathered and people are saying, we can see his family. We know that this guy's from Nazareth and yet he's telling us these incredible things about himself and they took offense at him, took offense at him. And the most interesting one of all for James is that we're told in John 7, not even his brothers believed in him. So James's story, he's a bit of an unlikely hero because the start of his story is about a doubter, a skeptic, someone who took offense at his brother, someone who even tried to seize him because he thought he was out of his mind. That's how James's story began. But it doesn't end there. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing an account of kind of the story of the resurrection. Here's what he tells us. He says, I delivered to you with first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then, who did he appear to? James, isn't that interesting? I wonder what that conversation was like. I told you so, James. <laughs> no, I think it was probably a lot more tender than that. Because after this encounter, after this moment with Jesus, what we know about James is that his life was completely revolutionized. That James went from being a doubter and a skeptic to when he saw his risen brother, he realized everything he'd ever said was true. What he'd missed his entire life because he, he slept next to Jesus growing up. They were kids together. He saw it all and he struggled in his heart. How can this possibly be true? And then when he saw the risen Christ, he realized there it is. It was always true. 
and he saw it for the first time. Not because someone beat it into him, but because his brother loved him and showed up to him and says, brother, here I am. And he doesn't just simply move to being a believer. James's story continues to grow. He's what we're told in the letter to the Galatians. Paul again writing, and Paul is he kind of recounting his own story of how he became a Christian and what happened next. And some of us, we don't always realize some of the details with that, but Paul becomes a Christian. He's, he's studying, he's praying, he's figuring out what that means for him. And then he goes to visit the church in Jerusalem. It says this in Galatians 1, 18 and 19. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. So James goes on to be a leader in the church. He goes on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem, somewhere in the 40s AD. He takes over where his brother had left off. He takes a hold of the charge that his brother had given to him to lead the church. And this is what we're told in Galatians 2. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, this is Paul talking about the leaders of the church, pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and there to the circumcised. And so James is the one who commissions Paul to go along with Peter and John. And in another account that we don't have time to travel through all of them, because it really could be the entire sermon today, James is in such prominence in the church in Jerusalem that in Acts 15, when the church is figuring out what ministry the Gentiles look like, do you know who they look to for guidance and counsel? Not Peter, not John, James. James is the chairman. Now, I had one preacher say this week, can you imagine being on the same ministry team as Peter and John, and you're still elected the captain? What does that say about James? This is becoming a man of remarkable faith and leadership, and he leaves us this incredible letter, which is the account of his teachings to the church. It's amazing. It's amazing that a man who started out as a doubter and as a skeptic, Jesus can do so much. That's an encouragement to me, that no matter how much doubt and struggle you have in your heart, Jesus can make something pretty great out of you. So church is not a place simply for those who are the most confident and the most bold. It's a place for doubters and skeptics. Amen. It's a place for those who struggle with faith. Because James struggled at the beginning of his story. But James, as he grows, as he starts to follow his, his brother, think about the fact that he opens his letter and says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that word servant is a Greek word, doulos. It really means slave. Can you imagine moving from being a doubter to saying, I'm a servant, I'm a slave of my brother. I've seen something in him that is so great, so incredible, that now my entire life runs according to the things that he gave me, instructed me in, and led me in. And what does he instruct us in? Well, James, that's what James's primary concern is. He wants to remind the church that Christ, his brother, has given them what they need to live out the kingdom of God on earth. And he wants them to have a faith that moves them into action, stands out to be different. Remember, we've just finished this series, Pathway to Purpose, and we talked about these six Gs, which were kind of our way of trying to summarize the life that God has called us to. That's what James is concerned with. He wants us to have a faith that moves us into action, that changes us, that makes us different. James doesn't want Christianity to be an exercise in kind of philosophy or intellectual kind of experimenting. It's not, it's not something that's far off in the ether. To James, Christianity is right here in day-to-day life. And he wants the church to understand, this is what it means to live for Christ. This is what it means to believe what we say we believe. And James's first lesson is this. God is so good that he can take the circumstances you would never want to bring about the transformation you need. 
And so we have to ask him. God is so good that he can take the circumstances you would never want to bring about the transformation that you need. And because he's that good, we should ask him. We should look to him. We should invite him to move in our life and change us. So I want to look at three things this morning together. Faith in trials, faith in temptation, and ultimately faith in the Father to see what James has for us. First, let's talk about faith in trials. Well, I came across this documentary recently that I was a huge fan of. It was all about uh, how they create swords and weapons. It's kind of a, one of those things that's on the History Channel, you know? And normally, I, I, I confess, I think a lot of the documentaries on there are pretty boring, but in this one, I saw them swinging swords around and cutting things in half, so I was, I was excited about this. So I watched it, and, and the whole documentary is kind of going through the process of how a, a weapon is made, and they take two guys who are uh, metal workers, and they say, this is what we want you to do. We want you to create a weapon that can do these things. And they give them these specifications, so the metal workers go away, and they get into their process, and they kind of, they melt down different metals, and they decide, what do I need to accomplish this task? And, and how strong does it need to be? How durable? How flexible? All these different things. And what is always a part of both of them, no matter what kind of choices they make in particular, they always have to go through a refining process with that metal. They have to heat it up to the hottest temperatures possible. They have to get rid of the impurities in the metals in order for it to become the thing that they are intending it to be. Now what a great picture, and actually a picture that's used often in scripture, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Christ is trying to do something in us. He's trying to shape us into something. He's trying to create something in us. And often that means that we are gonna have to go through high pressure and hot temperatures. That's what James says. James says to us in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If anyone, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now I want to pause there for a moment. The first thing that James tells the church, who by the way are going through some very difficult times when this letter has been written, persecuted, arrested, beaten, and his words to the church after his greeting are, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you go through trials of various kinds. Count it as joy? That's stunning to me. Stunning to me that he would say to the church, count it as joy that you are suffering, that you are struggling, that you're being tested, you're being pushed. Why? How could he possibly say that? What does it mean? James wants the church to understand that there's something God is doing even in their struggles. It's not wasted, wasted time. Just if we go back to Genesis 50, this is kind of the operating principle of God throughout all of his story, throughout the lives of everyone who's ever come to him. Joseph, when he meets with his brothers in Genesis, horrible things have happened to him, and this is what he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, we live in a broken world where bad things happen. And none of us are spared. Whether you're a believer or not, challenging things happen. But what's unique about belonging to Jesus is that God's goodness is so great, he can take the circumstances you would never want 
to bring about the transformation that you need. God's goodness towards us is such that he takes those things that are painful and difficult and he brings something good out of it. Now, just for a moment, I know this is complex, this is difficult, this is hard. This is the hardest place of our faith to think about what God's doing in our trials. But see the goodness that God doesn't want your pain and your tragedy to simply be a pain and a tragedy. He wants to bring something beautiful out of it. Isn't that kindness? Isn't that grace? That God doesn't want us to suffer tragedy without something good being brought out of it? That none of our pain is, is empty and meaningless? He goes on, he says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How many of you, of you out there like tests? I was psyched when I got out of college. I hated tests. In fact, I remember one test in particular. I think it was my senior year. It might have been my very last semester. So my graduation was dependent on this. I woke up, I think it was like 30 minutes after my final French exam had started. And I, French, I was not good at, okay? So like this, was, this might be the thing that holds me up from graduating. I did okay in all my other classes. French, I was terrible. So it, it did not feel good to wake up 30 minutes into that exam and realize I gotta get over there and I gotta pass this thing, right? In less time than everybody else. Tests are just, they cause so much anxiety. Probably many of us to this day still have nightmares about tests, right? It just kind of goes on in our life. Tests are difficult, but they're important because they reveal to us where we have misunderstandings or where we need help, right? Think about that, even in an academic setting, why do teachers give us tests? Because they want to understand where are the holes in your understanding? Where are the things that you need help with? I want you to think about tests in the same way. It is God's grace to you saying, let me help you find where you need more grace. Let's look at the places where you misunderstand me, where you need strength. That's what tests are for. God's desire is right there in the text. He wants us to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect and complete. This is gonna be something that comes up again and again in James. God wants to grow us to maturity. He wants to make us able to stand through the most difficult of circumstances. Tim Keller says, affliction is how we move from abstract knowledge of God to personal experience of him. Trials and tests take head knowledge and make it something that we can feel and know and understand in our hearts. And that's the joy. When he says count it all joy, he isn't saying, and this is very important, he isn't saying be joyful about the pain that you're feeling. God is not a sadomasochist. He isn't saying go through tragedy and feel good about it. He's saying as you suffer and struggle, take joy in knowing that I am with you, that I am working in you, and that I will bring about good from every tragedy that you experience. That's the joy. The joy of meeting Jesus in trials, meeting God in trials, the God who wants to care for you, provide for you, sustain you and strengthen you. That's the joy. You're not joyful that you've lost your job. You're not joyful that someone that you love dearly is sick and in pain. You're not joyful that circumstances are crushing down on you and wearying you. You're joyful that despite those things, God has not left you, that he is working for your good. So how do we find that joy? How do we build that joy? It tells us verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. See, it doesn't, that joy doesn't show up by magic. It's not osmosis. We don't just kind of stand still and it materializes somewhere deep in our souls. 
We have to ask. We have to approach our trials ready to learn. The incredibly wise movie Evan Almighty can help us with this. Because in that movie, there's a scene where the, the mom has kind of left her husband, things are going really difficult, and, and a, a man who she does not know is God comes and sits with them. And she says, I'm just so frustrated because I prayed to God for, for more time together as a family, and I prayed that he would do great things in us, and just everything seems to have gone the other direction. And this character says back to her, well, when you ask God for patience, do you think he's going to zap you with patience, or do you think he's going to put you in circumstances where you need to grow in patience? When you ask God for closeness in relationships, do you think he's gonna zap you with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or is he gonna put you in circumstances where you need to learn to serve one another and care for one another and be honest with one another? Occasionally, movies like that get it right. Because that's exactly what God wants to do. He wants us to learn to see what he sees and ask him for the things that we need. James is urging us to pray with the conviction that God wants to meet us and help us. There's a great example of this in scripture where three men are about to be thrown into a fiery furnace in Daniel 3 by a king who disagrees with their faith. And what they say to him is, our God is able to save us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we still won't worship you. The inference is we'll still love him. What they are saying in that moment is we're about to go through a difficult trial. And God can do great things. He can rescue us from this. He might not, but it won't change who he is won't change who he is to us. It won't change what he has done for us. It won't change what he will do for us. My circumstances do not dictate who God is. God is gonna show up in my circumstance and show me who he is. How many of us pray like those men? How many of us say, God, no matter what you do, I'm gonna discover more of you here. John 15, we're told, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit and apart from me you can do nothing. For those who find yourself in a trial right now, what would it look like to abide in Christ? What would it look like to seek him in your trial and in your struggle and in your burden? There's three things that come as no surprise. First, personal communion with God. Pray and be in the word. Sometimes we're like, God, I just... I wish you would speak to me and talk to me and I'm, I'm waiting for you to say something to me and all the time we're holding this. Remember Jeff did this a couple of weeks ago? This is God's word to us. It's his encouragement to us. It's his kindness to us. It's his love for us and sometimes we leave it on the shelf. Second thing we need is communion with his people. God always speaks louder in community. Always. If you're struggling, invite people in. Don't try and go it alone. God wants to meet you and uphold you through his people. And lastly, communion with yourself. And this is the hardest, because we have to ask honest questions about what we are doing in our trials and where we are running for our support. Is it to Jesus, or is it to money, food, media, distractions? If we can do those three things, then God will meet us. That's so why James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For once he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Pastor Brian called this spiritual thermodynamics. If you get enough pressure and enough heat and perseverance in God's word, you get Christian maturity. You get trust in the one who loves you. Trust that God is so good, he can take the circumstances you would never want 
and bring about the transformation you need. So ask him to. We come to closing, I want to talk very briefly about faith in the midst of temptation. Faith in the midst of temptation. Uh, this comes no surprise to you. Those of you who are parents have probably had a conversation where you find two kids crying and you ask, okay, what happened here? And one says, well, he made me do it. He made me do it. Do what? Uh, nothing, nothing, you know? And they immediately start blame shifting. Before you've even found out what's going on, someone else is causing the problem here, not me. I'm innocent. Have you ever in your life wondered whether some of the difficult situations in your life, this is God bringing it on me. God just wants to, he wants to make a mess for me. Even sometimes in our temptations, when we are being pulled towards things that we know are not good for us, somehow we kind of want to hang that on God's shoulders and say, this is your responsibility to make sure that I don't get tempted. You know what James says? James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured by his own desire. And desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully, off, for, fully grown, brings forth death. In the midst of trials, we need to endure. And in the midst of temptations, we need to escape. And the way to do both of those things is to seek Christ. Is to find faith in Christ. Let me ask you this. What's the, your desire for your life? What's your highest desire? What is it that you want God to do in you, to create in you, to craft in you? When you pray with him and you sit with him and you come to his word, what is it that you want him to do in your life? Do you want more security, comfort, simplicity, happiness, ease? Or do you want faith, humility, generosity, patience, self-control, See, escaping temptation means we have to learn to understand where our heart is at, what we are seeking after. Are we seeking the things of the flesh or the things of the spirit? That's the, the dynamic that the word of God sets up for us, things of the flesh, things of the spirit. This is what we're told Galatians 5. We won't read through everything because there's too much there, but it says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes on to highlight some different characteristics of the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh is, is dissensions, rivalries, angry, anger, impurity, idolatry, jealousy. Now it's easy to read through lists like that in the Bible and say, yeah, I'm doing pretty good, there's none of those. But actually, if we look at our life and we examine, how often do we indulge in jealousy and in dissension and in rivalries? If we're really honest with ourselves, those things are not as far away from our hearts as we like to think they are. And I'll be the first to admit that. Sometimes I come to church and I find too much of that list in my heart. And then I look at what the Spirit wants to accomplish in me. What does God want to accomplish in me? He wants me to grow in gentleness, self-control, patience, kindness, love, and joy. And those things mean that I've got to say no to my desires. Because I don't always desire those things as much as I should. I remember I went on a fly fishing trip uh, with Eric, actually, uh, not too long ago. And the most frustrating thing about that trip is you would throw your line into the water and you'd feel a tug. And so you'd crank that thing in as fast as you could and you'd get like a piece of seaweed or some trash that's somewhere at the bottom of the river. 
right? You get this, you get this excitement, you get this thrill, you're like, yes, I've got it, I've got the thing that I'm chasing, that I'm after, and you pull it in, there's nothing there, it's empty. You know that many of our desires function in that same way. They've got a great thrill on the front end. This is gonna be what I'm looking for, this is it. This is the thing that I've been searching for, this is gonna fulfill me, this is gonna make me feel happy, this is gonna give me confidence. And then you find out once you've reeled that thing all the way and it's empty. It's what James means when, it, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Because it's empty, there's nothing there, there's no life in it. But he's the comfort. First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Yeah, praise God. God does not let you figure it out by yourself. Grace, thank you, Lord. Doesn't let you face your sin alone. He extends his hands to help you to get out from under it, but you have to take hold of his hand. The truth is, often, always he's offering his hand, and most of the time, we don't choose to take hold of it. We don't want to change our lives around, reorganize things to avoid those things that are bringing destruction and discouragement and pain. And the work of the follower of Jesus is to ask God to give you new desires and be willing to see where you've desired the wrong things, where you've chased after the wrong things. To do that, we have to stand in the love of the Father. We have to have faith in the Father. He's how I want to close this morning. I want to look to the last verses of this passage. James tells us, chapter 1, 16 through 18, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's two truths in there that are so important for us. Number one, James is saying real joy is to be found in Christ and not in circumstances or counterfeits. He says, don't be deceived when you're going through trials, right? That's what he's referencing. You've gone through trials, you've struggled. When you're going through temptations and you're led to believe you might find life somewhere else, don't be deceived by that. Real joy isn't found in circumstances or in counterfeits. It's found in Christ alone. And the second thing, he tells us that God has shown grace to us. He's brought, he has brought us forth out of the word of truth. And he isn't changing, he isn't moving all those other things in life that you chase, they move around, they change from generation to generation. In 20 years time, society's gonna look a lot different than it does now. People will be chasing a whole new list of different things and God will be the same. And his love for us will be the same. And his guidance towards us will be the same because he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He knows what's good for us and he will continue to provide it for us if we look to him. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's who he is. Why would we look anywhere else? Your greatest anchor in times of trial and temptation is that you have a father who wants to help you more than you want to be helped. Will you look to him? Will you seek him? He's a good father. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. And he invites you to ask him for all your needs. One of my favorite sayings of Jesus is he's teaching and he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you're anything like me and you feel like you're too much of a sinner to God, for God to ever want to help you out of your own mess, I want you to read those words. If you know how to give good gifts to people, do you really think that God is going to give any less than you would? He'll give far more because he's generous. It's who he is. He's kind. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Are we asking? Are we going to him and say, God, pour into my life, grow me, change me, strengthen me, help me know how to deal with my neighbor who drives me crazy, help me how to walk with my loved one who's going through suffering and struggle, help me to have faith and confidence that you are who you say you are. Lastly, Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So often our struggle is not the circumstance, it's not turning our eyes to the Father, it's sidelining him. It's disbelieving that he really loves us. How many of us asked, are you gonna gonna finish what you started here? Have I shipwrecked this? Have I made a mess of this? I want you in those moments to look towards Jesus. He did two things for you. First, he went through his own trials for you. When James is talking about perseverance, you don't think it crossed his mind that that's exactly what his brother had to do with him? persevere with him, put up with his doubts and his struggles, and yet Christ did that for James, and he did that for us. He persevered, went to the cross, the greatest trial of all. Let me tell you about temptation. Christ was tempted as we are, in every regard, and yet without sin. And what helped him in that, what, what he stood on in that, was not magic, it was the love of the Father. It was a confidence in who his Father was and a perseverance in that love. He endured his trials, he overcame his temptations so that we could receive that same love from the Father so that now on any day, no matter what happened the day before, what might happen later tonight, you stand squarely if you are in Christ in the same love that the Father gave to Christ. He looks at you the exact same way. He withholds nothing that he didn't withhold from Christ. He gives everything to you that he gave to Christ. He is the father of lights. He's the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes from. He's made us alive. He's given us his love and now we must stand in that love. We must turn ourselves towards him and ask him for wisdom and James is gonna repeat that again and again. Your faith, it isn't an intellectual exercise. It's a movement towards the God who has already moved towards you. And I want you to hold on to that throughout this whole series. Don't Don't let that fall off. Don't forget that God will take the circumstances you would never want to bring about the transformation that you need because he's good, because he is a father to you. We're gonna come now to communion together. And it's easy for this to be another ritual that we go through, another thing that we kind of just pick up the cup, we say the words, we remind ourselves of the story, and we move on. But this morning... I want to invite you to join with me in trying to make this something different. A moment when we can be encouraged in the love of the Father because what these symbols represent is a Father who is willing to give us his own son. My favorite verse in all of scripture, I try to quote it regularly here at church because I think it's so good. It says this, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he's loved us and that he has given his son for us. And if he's given us his son, how will he not also with him give us all things? If you find yourself in a trial this morning, 
Look at the body and blood of Jesus and see the God who stands with you, who will walk through that trial with you, who will love you in that trial. If you're going through temptation this morning, you're struggling, I want you to look at the one who died for you, who will provide a way of escape and will offer you real joy. So if you would with me, would you peel the bottom of this cup and inside you'll find a piece of bread. Jesus gave us instructions with this when he sat at the last supper with his disciples. He said, I want you to take this, this symbol, and be reminded that this is my body that is broken for you. This morning, take this and pause it, you eat it, and remember he was broken for you out of great love and joy and that he stands with you today. Let's eat this in remembrance of him. Likewise, afterwards, Jesus took a cup. And he said, this is a symbol too. Symbol of my blood that is poured out as part of a new covenant, a new promise for the forgiveness of the sins of the world. When we drink this, we aren't just drinking a symbol. We are reminding our souls of the one who has given himself for us. Drink this and know that he has given himself for you. Trust in him. Let's drink this together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this chance to gather together as your people, to hear from your word, to be reminded by your brother of who you are, that you are the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You are consistent in your love for us. And when life sends us up and down and side to side and temptation sends us in circles, Father, there you are and anchor for our souls, extending your hand to us in Christ. God, we pray as a church and as a people, we'd lay hold of the hand of Christ. That we would trust that you hold on to us and that you have more for us. Lord, help us to count it all joy. Not because life is easy, but because you are with us. We pray in your son's name, amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that reminder. Picture of the future that we all walk towards in Christ. Before I close this morning, I just wanna remind you, if there's any way we can pray for you, please let us know. Again, this place, this gathering, it's not just for us to learn a new lesson. Quite honestly, sometimes you could learn a, a better lesson from many other pastors and teachers. But my heart for you as a pastor here is that this would be a place where you could walk towards Christ in community. That when you struggle, you would have a place to go. That you would have a people to walk with. So please do let us know if there's any way we can support you. We have care groups, we have prayer ministries, we have a whole host of things for you to involve, get involved in. But for now, let me offer you this benediction as we go, taken from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We could say every trial and temptation. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's in his name that we go. Amen.